Well, good morning, church family. Let's open up to the book of Jonah where we're gonna pick up where we left off several weeks ago. This morning, we're gonna focus primarily most all of our attention into chapter two. But I wanna refresh us just for a little bit because it's been a couple of weeks uh, since we've walked through this book. You know, Jonah one is probably the, the most well-known aspect or part of the Jonah narrative. Um, it's the story that we grew up hearing where Jonah was fleeing from the Lord as God had given a command for him to go to the Ninevites and to speak out against its evil uh, and to proclaim uh, what it is that God had told him to say. Jonah runs, uh, he ends up in the bottom of a ship where the Lord's judgment is issued on top of the ship. Uh, they cast lots trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Uh, they discover that Jonah is the reason, he's the culprit. He even admits that as much towards the end of chapter one. And where we left off was in verse 16, and I purposely saved verse 17 of chapter one for us today. And so what I wanna do is I wanna read uh, the first several verses uh, of our text this morning, beginning in chapter one, verse 17, where the text says this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would change us this morning according to your image and not according to our own. And so Father, would you help us now in these moments as we gather as your people to hear from you. Uh, Lord, speak to us. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, I, uh, I certainly miss you guys. I miss being with you and being in your presence. Uh, I missed uh, being with you on Easter as I know many of you have. But I believe uh, with all my heart, even though we are meeting uh, sort of in a very unconventional way, that God is still speaking, God is still changing. Um, I received several emails this past week from some of our church members that are actually inviting some of their coworkers to join us on our live stream uh, for the very first time to sort of get a taste of who we are and uh, really what we're all about. And I wanna remind you that though we're home self-quarantining, that we are still to be a people on mission with God, that we are still seeking to see those far from God come to know Christ. We are seeking to send people out into our cities whenever the city allows us to go back out into it and to go back to our jobs and to go back to whatever normal is that, that God has us. But maybe this morning you find yourself in a posture like Jonah where you've been running from the Lord recently. Maybe you find yourself in a, a place where you just feel distant from, from the Lord right now. You, you can't be with his people. And so there's something special about gathering with his people that makes us sense the presence of the Lord and to, and to be with him. And, and I wanna encourage you that it is meant to feel different and, and almost to the point where we should be deeply dissatisfied with the time that we're in. Longing for the day where we get to come and to be with one another once again. But where we left off several weeks ago, Jonah finds himself cast out of the ship and God in his sovereignty has orchestrated a large fish to come up and to care for Jonah. 
And so what we see when we look at the text, beginning in verse 17, I want you to notice just those first couple of words where he says, and it was the Lord who appointed. It was the Lord who orchestrated this in Jonah's life. It was the Lord who brought this great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, much debate was given in the 20th century by liberal scholars seeking to undermine the authority and the sufficiency of God's word, seeking to argue that it is quite impossible for a large fish or a large whale to swallow a human being and for a human being to live in the belly of that fish for over three days and then to ultimately survive, they sort of would throw that aside as just a fairy tale. But most of the men and women who argued as such were men that were seeking to undermine the authority of Scripture and seeking to undermine that God's word was true and that it was accurate as it is given and that it is good enough to lead us to a place and to a posture where we can trust it and that we can trust the historicity of the Bible that it is accurate. Friend, I, I find there are, are, are much greater things in the Bible that, that I might have a harder time believing than believing that God could swallow a man through a fish and, and that he could survive. In fact, just this week, I was reading in uh, one pastor theologian's commentary on the minor prophets, uh, and he talks about an article that he discovered uh, many years ago where a sailor had fallen overboard and, and he was swallowed by a fish, by a large whale. These sailors went on and they harpooned this large whale and they sought to save their, their friend that had fallen overboard. And the way this pastor describes it in this book on the minor prophets, they, they cut open the belly of that whale to find their friend was still alive. Now I find that quite interesting that scholars spent decades seeking to undermine this story, saying it was impossible, yet we have a few instances in history where this has actually happened. But I want to caution us because most of us grew up hearing the story that Jonah was swallowed by a well. In the Hebrew, uh, the word is just simply translated out better as great fish. We don't know that it was a whale. It doesn't say that specifically, but, but we also don't know that it, that it wasn't. We just simply know that this large animal who existed on earth during the time of Jonah swallows Jonah as Jonah is thrown overboard. And we believe that Jonah was a real person and that this actually happened. We, we must believe in the historicity of the book of Jonah that this actually happened. And so the Lord appointed this great fish and he swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. And then we transition into chapter two, and I want you to notice that the first word in chapter two that he begins with is then. And what we know from that is, is that it took Jonah over three days and three nights in the belly of the large fish, which, oh, by the way, we just happen to know through sailors and fishermen that if you were to gut a large animal and open up its stomach, that somewhere in the range of 105 to 115 degrees would have been the temperature inside the belly of this fish. And so if you can imagine for just a moment, Jonah is thrown overboard, recognizing that he's running from God. He goes into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights in utter darkness, 
with a temperature of 105 to 115, surrounded by all of these gastric juices that would have existed in the belly of this fish. Scholars contend that because of the acids that existed in, in these uh, fluids in the middle of this fish, that it would have began to bleach Jonah's skin. He would have smelled uh, in, in this horrendous way. I would uh, I liken it to, he would have smelled probably like a middle schooler who's returning from church camp after seven days and, and priding themselves and, and never having taken a shower one time. Jonah would have smelt like a middle schooler. And here he existed for three days and three nights. And finally, Jonah begins to come to his senses. And we begin to see in chapter two, as it unfolds, we begin to see the mindset, the spiritual state, the emotional state of Jonah. There he lays in the belly of the fish and he begins to cry out to the Lord. And we pick up in verse two where he says, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and God heard my voice. The location of, of Sheol, just another word for Hades, it, it was the, the picture of, of utter ruin and spiritual devastation in Jonah's life. He had reached the, the bottom of the bottom. There was nowhere further that, that he could fall. There was no presence that, that he could escape from God's presence. Here he was reaching the lowest point of his life and he begins to cry out to God, recognizing his situation and his need for help from God. I cried out to him and he heard my voice. Verse three says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Jonah was in a position of utter hopelessness. He was in a position of, of utter despair. I don't know about you, but I know for me, conversations that Haley and I have had recently on our walks has just been one of, of trying to keep our eyes on the Lord but you can't help but in this posture of, of waiting and in this posture of, of longing for, for it to get back to whatever we're gonna get back to and, and whatever normal actually is or whatever it actually becomes, we can't help but, but as a people um, go in and out of postures of despair. And it, and it may just be despair of, of missing the, the friends that, that I used to see or, or just the, the simple thing of, of taking my, my bride or my family out to eat just to experience living and, and getting out of the confines of, of our home and, and getting back to normal. It's easy to despair in these moments, is it not? Jonah was, was in a place of despair because of his disobedience, because of his, his willful um, posture of, of running towards sin, really just saying no to God and, and acting uh, as, a, as a man just in utter rebellion. This is what rebellion is. It's just simply saying no to what God has said yes to. And so Jonah finds himself cast into the deep in verse three to the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded him and all your waves and, and your billows passed over me. 
And then I said, I I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Not only did Jonah enter into a posture of of utter despair and, and hopelessness, he felt like he'd been forgotten. I don't know who's watching this this morning that that maybe you feel forgotten today. Maybe you are are in a place of despair and and hopelessness and and you feel like you've been forgotten. Maybe perhaps the the one thing I can say to you if if you find yourself in in that place is you've not been forgotten. That you need to hear just the simple truth and the reminder that God has not forgotten his people. God hears the cries of his people. He hears the prayers of his people. He knows when we despair. He knows when we feel forgotten. And yet, even in those moments of of feeling and even in those moments of erroneous thinking, not thinking about what is right and true and noble and and pure and, and good, even in those moments, God cares and God is with you, friend. I said, I am driven away from your sight. I've been forgotten, yet I shall, as a child of God, I shall look again upon what? Look upon your holy temple for the waters in verse five close in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars were closed up upon me forever. That word bars there in the text, it it has a double meaning. It, it, It paints two pictures for us. That as Jonah was running from God and he had reached the the level of just utter spiritual devastation and and seeking to to do what he wanted to do with his life, saying no to God and and yes to his own desires, he found himself at the bottom of the sea surrounded by by prison bars, so to speak. Metal bars that, that were holding him captive, yet at the same time, the second meaning of this word, he finds himself at the bottom of the ocean where the sandbars exist. And so the author intends for us to see this this prison that Jonah found himself in because of his own actions and as a result of, of consequences of those things. And he finds himself literally at the bottom of the sea in complete despair, wondering if, if God is still real and, and if God still cares or if he had been forgotten about God altogether. Yet, You, God, you brought me up from the pit. You brought my life up from this pit, O Lord, my God. And when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Some remarkable things are beginning to happen in Jonah's life. We said on previous weeks as we studied Jonah chapter one. And I believe this with all my heart that I believe that the text reflects this, that that God sends storms in our lives to break our self-reliance, to bust up our our self-sufficiency and to to lead us down a a place where we are trusting him and we are growing in our faith and and we are becoming more hopeful. And what God is doing right now in the midst of our city and and in the midst of of our culture is he is breaking us of our own self-reliance. 
And he is calling us as a people, but, but also you individually, me individually, to ask the question, where am I being too self-reliant and too self-sufficient? Where is it that I need to trust to a greater degree who God is and, and what he says he's going to do that I need to believe that and, and really believe it? And so God will send these storms into our lives to get our attention and to gather our focus and, and to place our eyes on him because he is the only person who is worthy of our attention and our focus. He is the only person who is worthy of our, of our intellect. He's the only person who is worthy of the affections and the emotions that exist within our heart. And so God sends this storm to bring Jonah to this low point, to the, to the bottom of the ocean where he is then swallowed up, not by a mean old fish, but rather, I think, by a merciful old fish. You see, I don't believe that the fish in this moment was Jonah's judgment, but rather I believe that this was the way in which God was bringing Jonah back not, not rebuking him for his sin, but rather saving him from his sin, saving him from a life of ruin and devastation, saving him from a life of regret. Friend, God still responds and acts to his people in this way. God is still redeeming and saving his people. God sent his son Christ into the world to die for our sins so that we didn't eternally perish from our sins. This is the hope of the gospel that God has already died for our sins and he's put those things to death and he has defeated sin, death, and evil on our behalf for his glory so that we eternally don't end up in a place where we eternally perish. This is the hope of the gospel. This is what Jonah begins to understand as he is walking through this. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to him. And then notice what he says in verse eight. Look very, very carefully at verse eight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope to steadfast love. My undergrad degree in college was finance. I'm decent with numbers and, and I like to, I, I can do some things intuitively in my head with numbers and, and I like to add up things from time to time. And, and here's one of the things that I want you to notice uh, in particular that has to do with math in the middle of chapter two, verse eight. You see, before verse eight, there were 24 verses that existed in the book of Jonah. After verse eight in chapter two, there are 23 more verses that bring to conclusion the end of Jonah. And so what we find here is smack dab in the middle of the book of Jonah. In verse eight of chapter two, we find Jonah finally realizing that the greatest problem didn't exist outside of him, but rather the greatest problem existed inside of him. And not just the idolatry that existed with the sailors that were on the ship, and not just the idolatry that existed within the culture of the Ninevites. Jonah begins to realize the own idolatry that exists within his own heart. And I believe that Jonah, chapter two, verse eight, this is the entire point of the book. 
This is the entire reason that that the author, God, is, is pointing us to this place where Jonah begins to recognize that those who pay regard to meaningless things, saying no to God where God has said yes, they forsake their hope in the steadfast love of the Lord. He uses the word hesed there in the Hebrew for steadfast. It means the covenantal love of God that he has for his people. It's the love that God had through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the love that Jonah, being a successful prophet, would have knew well of. He would have understood it deeply. And he finally, after three days and three nights, he comes to this this crazy conclusion that the pursuit of idolatry in his own life, it is meaningless and it is vain. He finally comes to the place where he recognizes his error the meaningless things in his life. Idols are are simply just that. They're anything that we seek to find meaning in apart from God. Idols are are often really good things that that evolve into God-like things in our life. Oftentimes, idols are expressed within the deepest longings and emotions that we have as human beings. Idolatry exists not just in going to temples and and outright worshiping and offering sacrifices to, to various gods. Idols are represented by the things that we want most apart from God. And for Jonah, whatever his, his idolatry was, this, this sin of, of thinking too highly of himself or, or wanting to go about things his own way, he, he was okay with the calling of God until that call disrupted his normal rhythm of life. And so God reveals to him in, in chapter one, arise and go and preach against the, the sin of the, of the Ninevites. Call them to, to judgment, call them to salvation. And Jonah didn't wanna do that because it messed with his, rhythm, with his rhythm. But every time God reveals, friend, he demands a response from his people, a response that is exhibited with, with faithfulness and with passion for the things of God. Those who pay regard to the vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But notice what Jonah does in verse nine. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I, with the voice of of gratitude, recognizing this love that God has for me and and entering into this this place of understanding of, of look what God has done, look to the degree to which God has saved me from my sins. Therefore, I'm going to go out and joyfully, gleefully, with great thanksgiving, constantly rejoicing in the goodness of God, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay for salvation belongs to the Lord. No sooner than Jonah comes to that realization, it says in verse 10, then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Vomited him out. Friend, Jonah is meant to remind us of the futility of of worshiping things that give us value apart from God. Jonah is meant to remind us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah brought a couple of things to his relationship with the Lord. 
It wasn't his good works or his righteous deeds. No, Jonah instead brought his sin and he brought his rebellion before the Lord. That's what he contributed. And if you notice how Jonah articulates what he's saying, for the Lord is the one who who brings him forth. The Lord is the one who saves him. The Lord is the one who redeems him. But Jonah came to this conclusion in the belly of this fish. He came to this conclusion in, in in the jail cell, locked in captivity, in the midst of difficult circumstances, Jonah began to realize that the prison cell that he once found him in was actually the hospital bed for his redemption. The prison cell of judgment for the disobedience that he displayed before God evolved into the hospital bed that ultimately restored Jonah to a right relationship with him to be back on mission. My youngest son, he's four years old and Within the past month or so, he, he just learned how to ride his bicycle without training wheels. Uh, I'll even go so far as I'm not afraid to admit it. Uh, he, he rides without a helmet. We, we are trying to teach our boys to, to live a dangerous life. And so we are, we're anti-helmet, although I know that we should. And, uh, and perhaps I'll get chastised by, by some of you later for not making him wear a helmet. We want boys to to fall and to scrape their knees. We, we want our boys to grow up and, and to be tough and, and uh, to understand that toughness. And a little over a month ago, Duke began to learn, my four-year-old, how to ride a bicycle without training wheels. In fact, um, we didn't even put him, I bought him a bicycle and it came with training wheels and I took the training wheels off and just threw them in the trash and just said, we're gonna learn to just ride the bicycle. And uh, he's still in that process, but he, he knows how to ride, uh, he can get going. Uh, but Duke's having some trouble uh, learning how to, how to stop. And he, and he gets better at it each day that we do it. And he's learning how to fall and how to fall graciously and gracefully. Well, just a few days ago, Haley and I were out walking. We like to walk uh, almost every evening that we can. And Duke wanted to come with us. He said, I want to ride my bike. I want to practice. I said, great, get it, let's go. And so we get to walking down this road and Duke's pedaling and pedaling and, and all of a sudden, Haley and I are talking. I'm not really paying attention to Duke and, and I realize that he's gotten about 100 yards ahead of us. He's gotten pretty far ahead. And Haley wasn't aware of this and I wasn't aware of this and then all of a sudden, we see out of the corner of our eye, we see another car coming down the road. Now we're trying to teach our kids that when you see a car coming down the road, you, you pull over to the side, you get off your bicycle, you stop, you wait for the car to pass and then you get back up and you get going. But Duke is, well, uh, quite frankly, he's, he's his own man at times. And he pedaled just as fast as he could. And, and we see him and I begin to yell, Duke, you need to pull over. Duke, you need to stop. My voice gets louder. Haley starts yelling. And for a fleeting moment, I, I see the car coming and I see Duke coming this way. And, and he's only about you know, this tall. He, he, uh, he's not very big and he'd be difficult to see. And, and, and then I had this fleeting thought just for a moment. Well, maybe he'll just wreck his bike and fall over and it'll solve this. And no sooner than I thought that, do I look up and I see that Duke starts to get the wiggles and he just crashes right on the side of the road. But he crashes on the side of the road into safety away from the car. You see, what, what I, I thought ultimately or what he thought 
This is a painful thing and that, I, that I'm, I'm learning to crash and, and would be devastation and trying circumstances for a four-year-old on a bicycle was actually the way to his salvation. It was the way to safety. It was the way to refuge, friend. Sometimes God allows us to experience great bumps in the road and he allows us to fall down so that we will recognize our, our, our inability to, to save ourselves, to, to redeem ourselves. And he did it in my son's life and he, and he did it in Jonah's life. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, the Pharisees are asking him questions and, and trying to trip him up. And they ask him about his, his bodily resurrection and Jesus answers in chapter 12. He says, listen, just as Jonah went into the belly of the well for three days and rose again, I will go into the son of man, will go into the belly of the earth and rise again. That in some ways we see ourselves in Jonah, in our sin, caught up in our sin. But in other ways, we recognize that, that though there are consequences for our actions and that God uses it to get our attention, Jesus in another way, was a, was a certain type of Jonah who, who goes into the belly of the well, who goes into the belly of the earth voluntarily for my sin and for your sin to save me from it. This is the hope of the gospel that we have as a people. That Christ has redeemed us of our sins, that he has conquered sin, death, and evil. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to convict us and to change us of our sins. Friend, I want to remind us this morning as we close our time in God's word of these, these simple truths that all of our lives have no meaning apart from God. And that it is through the blood shed on the cross by Jesus that we are able to have forgiveness before our God. And that God saves us, that salvation, as the text says, it belongs to the Lord. This morning in your homes, I'm gonna ask that you end with that prayer as a family. You pray with your spouses, with your children. And just thank God that he has saved us and redeemed us and that salvation belongs to him and praise him. Friend, I love you and I cannot wait to see you again. God bless.